What a wonderful presence of the Lord that's in this place. You know, God has always been faithful. And He will always be faithful. He said, where there's two or three gathered together in my name, I will be there. And I don't know that I've ever been anywhere where he violated that promise. When he promised to be here, he has always kept his promise. Now, you and I don't do that, but God always does. What an incredible presence of the Lord is in this place. Brother Clyde T., thank you. The most frustrating part of my life is trying to preach when nothing fits before I get to the pulpit. Thank you, Brother Clyde. Book of Psalms, chapter 33, verse 8, then Psalms, chapter 1. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Let me read that one again. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Not might be, possibly be, but he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Bringing forth his fruit and his season, his leaf also shall not wither And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So for a few moments tonight, I want to speak to you from the subject of all. Let all the world stand in awe of Him. Now, I want to talk to you about how important awe is in your life. A little emotion nobody writes about or talks about. But recently, research has been done to discover the importance of awe in our life. So I want to talk to you about the awe of God tonight. Lord bless you may be seated. Before I begin, first, let me thank all of you for your prayers and kindness while I was having surgery a few weeks ago, and I am greatly appreciative of that. I'm appreciative of a good church to be part of. There's no place like your home, and it's just an incredible privilege to be here and to be part of it. I, I am just slightly biased. I do believe we have the greatest preacher in Pentecost.
I've been lots of places and heard lots of preaching, but there's no one can compare to your pastor. He is. He is. But he, he's not just an incredible man of God. He does live what he believes. Now, I know him because I've grown up around him. I know him very well. I remember him taking his first steps. He was like my granddaughter. He didn't learn how to walk. He learned how to run. And he's been running ever since. I still remember that night that he come out behind an old vinyl divan or couch, whatever you want to call it, in our living room, little bitty house, four rooms, and he turned loose of it and started chasing us. And he, we ran him all night till he was exhausted. Me and Charles weren't the best of big brothers, but it's an honor to be part of his family, to have a, uh, a brother that I, I am incredibly proud of. Now, whether you realize it or not, there are people all over the United States and the world that are tuned in right now watching church. They're watching your church. Just recently in, in Oregon, a, a, a person stopped me and said, uh, y'all have really good church where you go to church, don't you? I said, oh, yes. I said, how do you know? He said, well, I watch it all the time. My wife was searching for you, but they found your brother, and we've been listening to his church services on a regular basis ever since. We're going to hear every sermon preached every week. So they live in Oregon, but they attend church here. It's an honor to be here tonight. And I I used to never would preach a sermon without at least 40 hours of study. And I'll have to tell you tonight, I haven't had 40 hours to study this one. Last Sunday in Canada, in the Sunday afternoon service, I spoke in the morning. A gentleman, another gentleman spoke that afternoon, and then Brother Enzi spoke that night, but he used this term, awe, and alluded to some research that had been done about how awe affects our life. And he didn't dwell there a long time, but I got to thinking about it and kind of got lost. And as I thought about it, I thought about it all the way home. I got home that Monday and opened the news and on, it may have been Monday, could have been Tuesday. When the news came up on my computer and, and the web page, the home page of Fox News appeared, I saw this incredible photograph that was so awe-inspiring. And so I clicked on it to read the story about the collision between two universes that they had just taken a picture of recently and thought about the fact that the beauty of the Lord reaches far beyond the world that you and I live in. All is one of the most important aspects of our life, but it's the one we pay least attention to. Years ago, probably close to 20 years now, 
may have been a little longer because we lived in our old home. We've been in the one we're in at least 19 years. And so over 20 years ago, I was awakened in January. And it was 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. And it was one of those life-altering experiences. I had been dreaming, but the dream stopped. And when I awoke, I recognized the presence of the Lord. And as I was laying there in my bed, meditating, I actually began to speak in tongues. And when I finished, the Lord gave me the interpretation of what I had just said. And what the interpretation was, was that your awe of me has been replaced by an awe of self. Now, the dream I was standing in a pulpit preaching, and that's the message that was given in that dream, but the interpretation came while I was awake. So it's more than a dream. Your awe of me has been replaced by an awe of self. Awe either makes us move to something or away from something. If it terrifies us, we kind of shrink back. If it causes us to have feelings of, of joy or happiness, we want to be drawn to whatever is creating to all. David writing the 33rd Psalm, a lot of scholars don't know if David wrote it because it doesn't have his name attached, but there are so many that believe this is probably David's. And, and it's believed to be written as an, a, a part of David simply thinking about the house of God and how important the house of God was. When you study David's life at this time, you discovered there was no house of God. Eli's sons took the ark into battle almost 90 years before David became king. And when Eli's sons took the ark into battle, it was captured by the Philistines, and then they marched straight to Shiloh, and they burned the original tabernacle to the ground. So when David thinks about the house of God, all he's got to think about are stories he's been told of what God did there. He has no experience of going there. He's never been there. All he has is this ability to think about or contemplate that this is what my family has taught me about what God has done and how God brought us out of Egypt and, and brought us across the Red Sea and through the wilderness and here. And, and so he's simply thinking about the stories he's heard, but he has had no ability to experience. When given an opportunity a little later in his life to create a house of God, he wanted to build God the house that his his ark would rest in, but God wouldn't let him. So he simply built a tent, and he put the ark inside the tent, and that was his house of God. But even that 
caused him to stand in awe of God. And David said that it would, it would be good for a man to have a fear of God. Not in shirking away or, or being terrified, but simply understanding how awesome and how powerful and how mighty God really is. And that if God desired to, we could all be history in just a, a moment, split second of time, humanity would cease to exist. But that's not his desire. His desire is to live among his people. And David heard those statements over and over as a kid because his father is the chief justice of their Supreme Court. He's the head of the Sanhedrin. And he heard all his life as a child of, from his father that God's desire has always been to just be among us. I want to be part of your life. I want to live in your life. I, I want to be close to you. And so he creates a place that allows him to get as close to them as he can without them dying as a result of his righteousness and his holiness. See, humans cannot walk in the presence of God without some kind of covering because of sin. And because they had no cross, they could only get close enough to the tabernacle. They couldn't participate. All they could do is watch. And as they watched in the distance and watched the priests go through the rituals, when they saw the cloud descend, they knew that God had walked into that presence and that God was behind the veil and that God was ministering and that their sins were going to be removed and rolled ahead another year and another year and another year. Scientists have discovered that all can affect us physically or physiologically. The experience of all is associated with several physiological effects. The first one is it changes the nervous system. The second, it causes goosebumps, chills, and it reduces inflammation. That's physically. Physically, all reduces any kind of inflammation in your body that can produce a disease. Now, psychologically, they have discovered that all or these effect of all is includes both a cognitive and an emotional outcome. It affects the way I think and the way I feel. They've also discovered that all produces this sense of smallness and it diminishes a person's sense of self. The feeling of awe brings me into a relationship with my surroundings and causes me to look at others instead of myself. Awe makes people humble. It produces cognitive accommodation or it causes you to think about other people. It expands my perception of time when I am in awe. It helps people feel more connected to others and to humanity as a whole. It improves a person's mood and a sense of well-being. 
It increases people's sense of satisfaction with their own life. It dampens the feelings of materialism. When you stand in awe, you lose your need to have anything in this world. You start thinking about a different world. When you stand in awe of Him and you have an awe of what He is and what He can do, you're no longer concerned about what you can accumulate here. You start thinking about what you might be able to pick up on the other side. So when I stand in awe of God, I lose my touch with my world, and I gain a touch with His world. Awe, according to psychologists, produces an increase in spiritual and religious feelings. It helps facilitate scientific learning and reasoning in children. Not just adults, kids. It has social effects as well, specifically on our levels of kindness and generosity. When you're in awe, you're a more generous person than when you're not. All calms the mind and soothes the spirit, according to psychologists. It diffuses anxiety, stress, and unhappiness, while also inspiring curiosity and enhances creativity. Just standing in awe of God. If you want to get rid of your depressed mood, then think about God. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate both day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. An awe of God changes everything about my life. It causes me to become, it gets rid of all these other issues. Awe is that feeling you get when confronted with something vast that transcends normality that you struggle to fully understand. The mind is still and you lose your egocentric sense of self. Number one, please. Let me just give you a view of awe. That is less than one-sixteenth of an inch square of our universe. Looking through a Hubble telescope, that's what they see. And the dimension of space they're looking through is about the size of a pinhead. And when they can zoom in on that pinhead, here's what they see. Now, the problem with this picture is this picture didn't happen yesterday or last week or last month. This is a picture of the universe four billion years ago before God created man and put him here. This is where God lived and what God's world looked like before my world ever showed up. And I don't know about you, but that's hard for my brain to comprehend. How that for billions of years, that light for that image has traveled through space. And the day they decided to take the photograph, this is what they saw. 
Because you see something so vast and, and, and so big, it's just difficult. That's where this feeling of awe comes from. You lose your sense that you are surveying this and you get lost in its beauty and its loveliness. Your heart may even skip a beat. You, you might get goosebumps. For a short while at least everything pauses as if balanced perfectly on the head of a pen. According to scientists, your spirit, the world, and time itself become one when you stand in awe. Awe creates a vanishing self. All negative traits simply evaporate. That nagging voice in your head, anxious, selfish, self-consciousness, self-interest, all disappear. The moment you stand in awe, you begin to feel more connected to the greater whole, to friends, to family, to society, to the physical world, to the universe. Awe is immense. It's infinite. It's incredible. It can only be felt, according to scientists, by the deepest recess reaches of the human soul. It takes a soul to understand all. No animal ever stops and looks up at the sky and wonders how it got there. They're not all. You've got to have a soul to be able to experience the wonder of all. All cultivates generosity, compassion, selflessness. It calms the mind, diminishes selfishness and narcissism. It lowers stress sometimes for weeks afterwards, and enhances happiness and quality of life. And if you tell me you have a right to be happy, I'm going to remind you all you got to do is stand and look at what God's done, and all that junk's going to go away. If you get your focus off of you and on Him, all the junk of life just disappears because all of a sudden I am now seeing Him for what He cares and does for our lives. Awe enhances the immune system by cutting the production of an inflammatory cytokines. It stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system, which in turn soothes the body's stressful fight or flight response. It alters your sense of time so that it feels as you have more of it and you feel less busy and more willing to devote your time to helping others. Just simply awe. All can help break habitual patterns of thought, especially negative ones. It also enhances memory because memories are not fixed data banks that store objective data. They are far more fluid than that. They are colored by your assumptions and your expectations. But all counteracts all this tendency by enhancing mental clarity and freshness. So you want a clear mind? Just think about God. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he both meditate both day and night. Oh. Let's just look at what God's done. Another little sixteenth of space and another 
little sixteenth of space. And another little sixteenth of space. And now we see a galaxy. I asked my wife to do the Google thing on the way to church because my mind was running and she don't like me texting or getting on my computer while I'm driving. So <laughs> probably not a good idea for that to happen either. But So I asked her, just ask the question, how many stars are in our universe? Simply our Milky Way. How many stars are here? And instead of giving me a number, she gave me a history or lesson in science. Because there's really no way of numbering the stars. If you're going to decide which star is the one you measure it by, is it one like ours or is it one bigger than ours or is it one smaller than ours? Because all of them define how many stars there are in the Milky Way. But, By their assumptions of looking at all of them and looking at one little bitty part of that little space out in the sky through a telescope, they believe that there are over 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. 100 billion. Then I ask, okay, how many galaxies are in the universe? And guess what that number is? 100 billion galaxies that are visible to us. We don't know where the universe ends. So we can't even tell where it starts or where it begins. But yet a God that created this vastness was so concerned about every human sitting here tonight, that he left that vastness and that beauty and splendor and came to this world that he could become the person or that we could become the person he created us to be. Give me the next one, please. Anybody want to guess what that is? That is the axle, and wheels of a chariot that have been uncovered at the bottom of the Red Sea. And the interesting part is when they send their robot down to take pictures and they start a journey, they start on one side of the sea and go all the way to the other side of the sea. Now, there's no longer wood in any of those, or steel. All you're actually seeing is the coral formation that formed around those things that let us know they used to be there. And just simply proves that the exodus took place. Because there are littered across the bottom of the Red Sea the chariots of Pharaoh's army. And they can't argue with this image because it's not something man made up it's just this is what's actually here and according to the quartermaster of the of the army for you to get two and a half million people across the red sea in a single night they would have to be stacked up five thousand across 
and a space of at least three miles for them to all walk across one night. And they did. And he parted the sea, and there are chariots to prove that he parted the sea so they could get through. And they come across the other side. It would take 1,500 tons of food to feed them every day. 4,000 tons of wood for fuel and 11 million gallons of water to supply basic needs for 2.5 million people. That would be equivalent to 434 rail cars full of water brought to them every day. But he supplied it with just a spoken word or a rock that would open and they would have water. He would cause the wind to blow and the quail would come and they didn't even have to hunt. And then he would bring food from heaven that they call manna, which literally interprets what is it. They didn't even know how to describe it, so they just got to eat what is it every day of their life. They did get tired of the manna that came, and they bellyached about the what is it, but he fed them and brought them out because he is an awesome God. He is an awe-inspiring God, and he loves us unconditionally. Now, we can be awed by the handiwork of man. And this handiwork can actually, uh uh-oh, disappeared, huh? Men, technology, don't like me. It went to sleep on him. I I spoke too long. (laughs) Oh, well. Great Wall of China should be up there. 8,000 miles long. That man created. And yet we look at it and see this awe-inspiring feat or event that took place as a result of what man has done. But everything God does, he does in a much greater fashion. There it is. That's me taking the picture. So I'm standing on it. I know it exists because I've walked there. Now, I understand that there are a lot of people in America today, and I'm not sure why, that think a lot of these things don't exist and didn't happen. But I have to tell you, that was there. It's quite awe-inspiring to stand on the top of that mountain. And as far as you can see, up the top of a mountain, down the next, up, over, as far as the eye can see, you can see the wall go one direction, you turn the other direction, you can see it go that direction. All by the hand of man. I saw where a governor of... A Chinese providence, 2,500 years before the birth of Christ, diverted a river and changed its pattern so it no longer flooded their land, but they controlled it 2,500 years ago by the ingenuity of a human mind. That is awe-inspiring. But that is never as awe-inspiring as this next one. There was a gentleman that wrote so many books about the Holy Ghost and praying and prayer. His name was Watchman Nee. He discovered a relationship with God, but he never got to that next level. But two pastors since that time was taught a Bible study and has now been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of his sins. 
and now pastors a church of over 200,000 people that he is baptizing every one of them in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. When a man starts a journey, God's going to complete the journey for him. And so here we are. We stand at the awe of God. Next, please. Now, that's not a very good picture, is it? That, that's not good, but that's a rock group called Salava. Now, what a name. Spit. I have no clue why somebody had come up with, with such a, a name, but that, that's the name. Next, please. That's him on the left. Oh, he started movies. He wrote the teen song to Spider-Man called Hero. Next, please. But that's him at a Pentecostal altar being filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Not only speaking with tongues, but being baptized in his name, but giving up his former lifestyle. And he's now a jailer in the county jail. He's no longer in Hollywood. He's got an incredible voice with incredible abilities. But when he found God, he got inspired by something different because his awe of God was replaced by an awe of self because he is an awe-inspiring God. Next one, please. This gentleman was on the 102nd floor of Tower 2 of the World Trade Center the day the plane landed in its side and rode the building down when it collapsed and walked out of the rubble unscathed because he is an apostolic, Jesus-named, blood-bought child of God. Terrorists tried to destroy him, but God gave him a ride to the ground in an elevator made without hands, and he walked out of a rubble because we have an awe-inspiring God. And when I look at what God does, And what God has done, we are awed by his beauty and his loveliness and his righteousness. There's none like him. But it saddens me today to know that people are losing their awe of God. And the prophecy God gave me 20 years ago, I'm seeing it happen. We're not awed by his presence. We're not awed by his house. We used to be or have more respect for the house of God. We, we used to have more connection to the house of God, but we kind of lost the awe of God. And the only substitute for an awe of God is an awe of self. And when you lose your awe of God, you're going to lose your awe of self. You're going to replace it with an awe of self. You're not going to lose it. You're going to replace it with an awe of self. And now all of a sudden, junk is going to happen. Lives are going to be wrecked. Can you go to number 18 and skip the others, please? Five years ago, I got to stand in the ancient city of Ephesus. And I walk into this little building. 
that has now been uncovered. Ephesus was destroyed by an earthquake somewhere around 460-something A.D. And they are now just uncovering it because Turkey is a Muslim nation. They will not spend one penny on any kind of archaeological digs that have anything to do with Christianity. So all work done in their nation is done by other countries that pay for people to come and do this. This section that I'm standing in was the product of what the nation of Italy has done by sending money and archaeologists there. And they had uncovered a section of that old city about 300 feet wide, about 600 foot long. In the middle of it is a church. And that church is from the first century. So I'm looking at a church that John would have preached in while he was in Ephesus. And as I'm standing here looking at this church, the gentleman beside me, next one please, tells me to look at my feet. And at my feet is a hole in the ground. Next one please. And he said, look carefully. What do you see? So, well, I don't know. It's just a hole in the floor. It's in the foyer of the church. And he said, well, that's their baptistry. The previous picture had a hole in it. See the hole by the blue crate? That's where the water came in. There's a hole on my side where the water went out. It had constantly flowing water. So to go into the first church in the first century... You had to walk around the baptistry to get inside the house of God. Baptism was so important, they put it in the vestibule, and you had to get there. Now, we are debating whether it's necessary to even be baptized, because our all God has been replaced by an awe of self. And so we're arguing about things that that are not even important because they're things that are going to wreck my life, not make it better. You never change one thing in your life that gives your flesh more power, that makes you more spiritual. It can only make you more carnal. You don't lose holiness to become more spiritual. You get rid of holiness so that you can become more carnal. And you can look like the world and act like the world. But the first church thought it was important enough that they put baptistry inside the front of the church. Next slide, please. I wish it was on the back so I could see what I'm looking at. Library. Right outside the door of this church is the old library. It was there that they kept all the writings. They collected the writings of the New Testament church. Next, please. Incredible feats of man that still exist. That old library, still there. The earthquake didn't destroy it. Most of the building disappeared. Part of its structure still stands today. Next, please. And as you walk through this archway, you start a journey, next please, that brings you to an arena. And it's here that for two hours, the inhabitants of, is, or of Ephesus gathered and screamed at the top of their voice, great is Diana. Great is Diana. Why? 
Because for two years, Paul had been in the city of Ephesus and incredible miracles had taken place. They took handkerchiefs from his body, laid it on people, and they were healed. And there was this mighty revival that took place that historians believe had more than 80,000 saints. What a revival. What would happen to the world today that you live in if they become so concerned with us that we became so powerful and so effective that we started altering their lives and they start shouting, we got to do something because those Pentecostals are changing everything. That's what the first church did. That's what we have the power to do. If we never lose our awe of God, but if we ever lose that awe of God, then those things will not happen and we will not see them take place like God desires to see them happen. I walk to the top of that Colosseum. Next, please. And as I'm walking to the top of it, I'm taking a picture as I make my journey because I'm going to walk to the other side. Next, please. And when I get to the top of that Colosseum, I can see the theater stage. But if you look off to the Top in the left corner or the right corner, you see a white marble road. Next, please. And when you keep walking at the end of the Colosseum, I'm looking down a marble road where Paul shows up to Ephesus for the first time, gets off a boat, doesn't take very many steps. He's beside that marble road. At the end of it is the water. He hasn't walked more than a quarter of a mile, and he meets John's disciples. And he says... Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Now, what even gave him a clue to ask that question? Have you, if believing was all you had to do, then why did Paul ask this question? Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said, we don't, we don't even know there was a Holy Ghost. And he baptized them all and laid his hands on them and they began to speak with tongues and to prophesy because the awe of God is what controlled that first church. They were in such awe of Jesus that it showed up in their behavior. It showed up in their nature. It showed up in their lifestyle. And the people they were around would say that these are Christians. They've been with Jesus. They knew just by their life where they had been and who they were associated with because they never lost their awe of Jesus Christ. After those 12 men disappear, it's not long in history before man starts losing his awe of God and he starts replacing it with his ability to think and reason. And now there's an awe of self. And in a very short period of time, they are no longer worshiping the apostolic doctrine, but they perverted it and changed it. They go from a baptismal pool in the front of an auditorium to get in a place. you got to walk around it to get in to going to simply sprinkling water on people and saying you're baptized. They went from immersion to sprinkling. How would that happen? Their awe of God disappeared, and they become more influenced by what they could think and what they believed and become so bold as to say, we believe the church knows more today than the apostles did. And as a result of saying, we believe more today than the apostles did, they gave us a baptism that's not in the Scripture. It's progressive revelation. 
God's given us more today. I don't know more than the apostles knew. You don't know more than the apostles. Don't you ever go down that road of saying God's given us a better revelation he gave them. Because if you believe it, then you've got to accept all their other doctrines that come as a result of saying that we know more than somebody else. No, get your eyes off of people and get them back on him. Fall in love with Jesus Christ. I know I'm getting old, and it bothers me what I see and what's happening around me. When I look at us, and I see words on the screen as they're singing songs, because they sound good. And it says, one with God from the beginning of time. And I punched the preacher beside me. And I said, we don't even know the oneness doctrine enough to know that we just sang a Trinitarian song. He wasn't one with God. He was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And it's named the only begotten of the Father because He created a body that came out of a woman. But God lived inside that body. Jehovah of the Old Testament became Yeshua, Yahashua of the New, or Jesus, Jesus, Jesus of the New Testament. And now we are, now we have the privilege of being His children. And if we're not careful, we start losing our identity by our doctrine because we don't have an awe of God and we get an awe of sound and noise and words and feelings instead of a knowledge of who He is. When I stand and look at His creation, I am awed by what He has. When I stand and know that all He asked me to do was to lay my hands on the sick, and if I pray, they will recover. When we start doing it the apostolic way. Can I be honest? We have been wrong. We bring you. We call you. We say, is there anybody here sick tonight that would like to be prayed for? Please come. That is not scriptural. The scripture said, if there's any sick among you, let them Brother Cheryl told me this morning, standing by that door, he said, the Lord reminded me several weeks ago, I had people all over the world praying for my wife, but the Lord reminded me, you're not doing it right. Because the Word said, let them call the elders of the church. And he called my brother, and he said, that I, we need to do this the Bible way. And they showed up the next morning, and we anointed them with oil and prayed for him the first week. The first tumor disappeared, second week, the second tumor disappeared. And he said, the doctor said, I don't understand it. (laughs) 
So he wrote her a prescription. And on the prescription he printed out on his computer and handed to her was have faith. Number one item on that list. Eat right. They can't explain what God can do. Let me give you a little bit of insight. Scientists say that if you could cut off the blood supply of cancer, it'd die because it has nothing that allow it to live. So I cursed the blood supply to her cancer that Sunday morning standing over there. And within one week, the first one dried up because he gave me power to use that name and they did it the right way. And when we curse the blood supply, the first one disappeared. Then the second one, the third one is diminished. And they're now, they don't understand why. They just going to shake their head. But I know why. I've got a God I'm awed by. And I've got a God because I'm awed by Him and His abilities and His power. I'm awed by God who can put His hands around His saint and bring Him 203 floors down and let Him walk out unscathed without one scratch Or one scar of any kind. Why? When you're in awe of Him, it changes everything. You get happiness in your life. All your depression disappears. There's no more anxiety. There's no more chaos. Because when you're awed by Him, whoa, there's nobody like my God. There is no God like my God. There is no God like my God. You see, you cannot convince me God can't heal cancer because I saw it at six years of age when he healed mom and she lived to be 84 and they said she'd never live. But he healed her and I watched her as she lived her life out. I know God heals. All I have to do is obey. And when you obey and we follow the scripture the way the scripture said, it's not my job to convince you you need prayer. It's your job to decide if you need prayer. And when you decide you need prayer, and you will take it in your hands, and you'll stand up, and you'll call the elders of the church, your life's going to change instantly. There's things going to start taking place in your life. You're going to start seeing miracles. You might even prophesy. Please stand. I'm through. There is no God like my God. But He's not termed by generic name God. His name is Jesus. So there's no Jesus like my Jesus. And my Jesus knows the paths I take. My Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even To the ends of the world. My Jesus said. That whatever happens to you in life. I'm going to make good out of it. No matter what chaos life brings. I'll return it. In beauty and splendor. I'll give you back whatever life steals. See my Jesus. Is awe inspiring. And when I get awed of him. 
and I hear things that are strange, my spirit pays up, stands up real quick and says, whoa, there's something wrong with this. This is, it might sound good, but there's something wrong with this. This doesn't have the right ring. This doesn't have the right words. He's not one with God. He is God. We know Him. See, that's what makes apostolic Pentecost so different than the world. We know that Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh. And we're never going to let you forget that. My pastor that my brother talked about today didn't perform a funeral without preaching the apostolic message. He didn't perform a wedding without mentioning that the name of the Father is Jesus. Because Jesus said, I come in my Father's name. And the name of the Son is Jesus. And the name of the Holy Ghost is Jesus. Because Jesus said, I will send the Holy Ghost in my name. And by the way, name, Father, is not a name. It's a title or descriptive term. Son is not a name. Holy Ghost is not a name. What is the name? Jesus. And that name is the most important name in your life. That name is the only name that brings salvation. That name is the only thing that will change your life. And you better just develop an awe of that name and its beauty and its power and its loveliness. And if you do, you'll start changing your world. He's here tonight. I'm not going to give you any kind of invitation. I don't even know how to even end this thing. Other than if you, you just need an awe of God. I know a place you can get to where you can find it. You need to reconnect to His power and His authority and what He can do in your life. He's here. There is none like you. There is none like you, Jesus. Oh, there's none like Jesus. My heart like you. No one. No one like Jesus. No one like Jesus. I am in all of you.